Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Uh, uh, my computer just leaked, so I can read my copy, so bear with me for a minute. Um, but while I'm looking for my copy to introduce my sponsor, I'm going to welcome my guest. Uh, he is an author of pop culture and a bunch of other interesting things. Uh, he's got several books that are out. His name is Nicholas Dyack. Hi, Nick. Say hi to everybody while I sh- look for my sponsor note. <laughs> no problem. Hi, everyone. I hope everyone's having a wonderful Thursday out there. I'm sure they are in their own <laughs> way. Um, a okay. better way to think about it, that's Friday Eve, everyone. Friday Eve. I like that. The Eve of Friday. Um, I get you even okay. more excited. Eve of Friday. Whee! Is that better? <laughs> mm. The thing is, Nick, I work every day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, life of a writer, if, you know, uh, every day, hopefully you're writing, researching, brainstorming, never turning it off. That's very true, which is a really good segue. I'm going to do my sponsor note, and then we'll go on. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the Writers and Illustrators of the Future. They're providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Um I don't have that memorized, so that my computer blinked out. It's not a pleasant thing. So, uh, public, uh, writers of the future, I love you, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh, you're golden. Um, I have a question for you that I haven't asked before. You are right. You are my pop culture scholar, so how did you start? What was your first thing that you became sort of obsessed with in pop culture? Oh, man. That's a big can of worms, Sherry. You want me to, want me to dive into that? Because I can. They're fun. <laughs> All right. Man, what start? I, I, I want to say it probably started when I went back to school to get my master's. Uh, I went back to uh, school in the late 2000s at the University of Washington in Tacoma. Uh, to work on my uh, master's for interdisciplinary arts and sciences, which is it's kind of a general liberal arts degree. You kind of just kind of shape it to what you want it to work on. And I just kind of fell in love with uh, Italian genre cinema. Um, before that, I was kind of watching a lot of <laughs> Italian horror films like Suspiria and Lucio Fulci Zombie. And... Uh, as in school, you know, kind of researching, you know, just like the, the things like a, for pop culture artifacts, you know, what makes them important. And I just sort of kind of linked that to with the movies I was watching at the time. I'm like, wait a second, you know, I can watch these films or maybe I can actually write about them and do kind of something constructive with them. And so I wound up doing my uh, master's thesis on a, an Italian director named Antonio Margaretti. And when I kind of dive into a topic, I, I really dive into it. I start, you know, consuming all their, uh, in this case, films, all the books about them and everything. And uh, 
through doing my master's thesis, it kind of led to me uh, really exploring all of Italian cinema, uh, spaghetti westerns, gothic horror, uh, the peplum films, which will <laughs> come into play here in a second, um, the Euro spy films, the James Bond stuff. And so it just casted this huge web of, of different movie genres and everything that just kind of sucked me all in. And um, about a year or so after that, that's when um, my, my partner in crime, Michelle, you know, she started her first book, uh, the James Bond and Popular Culture book. And so, yeah, of course I want to be a part of that book. And so I, I really dove into the, to the James Bond studies, the uh, uh, European spy film studies. And so I kind of made a, a leap from specifically Italian stuff to now more globalized stuff. And then basically what happens is every time I do a project, I learn something new about something else. And what happens is after that project's done, I wind up jumping ship to yet another kind of project. And it kind of, in a weird sort of way, perpetuates. So I went from kind of laser focusing on an Italian director to Italian spy films to space horror films to when I did my first book on sword and sandal films to doing synthwave music to doing horror literature to right now I'm broke to do an essay for a Twilight Zone book. And it just, it sounds kind of weird. I keep hopping around, but just every time I do a project, I learn something new about something else and it kind of just catches my attention. And so when I look back, I'm like, wow, I've had my hands in kind of a lot of different, you know, pop culture artifacts in if I may, most of it's kind of like not mainstream pop culture artifacts, but like at the fringes, you know, like the exploitation films, our underground cinema, our industrial music, where it's just kind of at the cusp of pop culture, where, you know, not much has been written about, but I seem to kind of flourish to, you know, bring to light, to bring something like new to the dialogue. That's interesting. I hope that was kind of what you're looking for. Completely, because I'm the type of person that. Let me put it this way: when the first uh, book that I really got hooked on was Ellery Queen when I was a little girl, because there was a TV show at that time called <laughs> Ellery Queen with Jim Hutton, and so I. My father always wanted us to read as much as we watched television. They had no problem with us watching TV and, and, and going to movies, but they, my dad wanted us to be readers, too. So if we showed an interest in something, he would buy books. So he got me a bunch of Ellery Queen books for, I think it was my birthday. It was either my birthday or Hanukkah. And I became obsessed. And how to read everything about Ellery Queen. Found out there is no Ellery Queen, that it was a couple of lawyers who came up with the idea. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like Starbucks, but with books. Um, <laughs> but but it was it, that's I've always been like that, so I can really understand. Um, I did that with every author that I admired uh, and every subject I admired. I mean. One thing that it was really weird was that um, my, when I was in college, my major was archaeology, anthropology with 
was the bridge and archaeology was the subject, and theater. And people are like, what do those two have in common? And I go, they're studying people. <laughs> and it always shut them up. <laughs> if there's anything, I, I don't know if I regret it or not, but, you know, when you talk to a lot of content creators out there, especially writers, a lot of folks will say something like, oh, I've been writing since I was a kid, or oh, I've been reading since I was a kid. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to say when I was a kid, I wasn't quite bit by those bugs. Um, you know, I wouldn't discover all that stuff until much, much later in my life. And so I don't necessarily regret it per se, because, you know, I did other pursuits instead, lots of music, lots of games, lots of old other kind of cultural artifacts. But uh, I, I do kind of wish, you know, you know, if I could turn back the clock, you know, had I read more, had I written more, would I be even further along in my kind of academic career? But at the same time, you know, I'm like, well, Nick, maybe, maybe not. You still have, you know, written and edited some books and stuff that no one else has done. So, yeah, don't beat yourself up over it that, you know, other folks have done X, Y, and Z because, you know, you've done A, B, and C instead. I don't think – the thing is is that one thing that people do too much, and I, I'm just figuring it out, and I'm not exactly a young chick, Um that people compare. I compare myself all the time. And just recently I realized, why? Why am I doing it? I mean, I, who am I comparing myself to? I don't know these people. I'm just comparing myself because they're people I admire. But, but yeah, but you can admire them, but don't, like you said, don't beat yourself up over it. It's some kind of weird psychological bent we have that we want people to approve of us. <laughs> well, I I would agree with that. Uh, I, I, I'm totally guilty. I, I will totally own that. You know, I'll look at someone else's accomplishments and go, ah, shucks. You know, at the same time, I'll be, you know, obviously at the forefront saying, absolutely awesome, you know, great root, root for them. Um, you know, more envy than jealousy, obviously. But I think a lot of the reasons that we wind up comparing ourselves to others is, you know, other people can act as life benchmarks or life milestones for us because, you know, as we kind of travel through, you know, this game of life, you know, there's no instruction booklet. There's, you know, what's the goalposts that we go day by day? What are our accomplishments? And, you know, unless you, you know, who's telling you to do that? You know, most of the time, hopefully it comes from within ourselves as we try to find our own kind of way through everything. But if we look to other folks, you know, you can kind of say, well, that's something to strive toward. You know, that person's done X, Y, Z. I'm kind of, I wish I did it, but, you know, I think a healthy attitude is, well, you know, uh, they're doing that. I don't have to emulate it. I can be supportive and find my own way. But then you can also kind of be down like, oh, man, I haven't accomplished that. I'm at this point in my life. But I think that's kind of where a little bit of our comparison comes from is, how do we measure ourselves to other people? And, you know, I want to say that's a, you know, bad attitude, but at the same time, is it kind of really? Uh, I think you can have a, a healthy relationship with, you know, I don't want to say comparing per se to other people, but a healthy kind of reality check of as long as you come back to, you know what, I haven't done those things, but I've done my own things, and I'm just as accomplished, and I've done X, Y, and Z that no one else has done. 
I think that's the you know better way to come out of it. So I try yes, to do I, that, but of course there's some days I'm like, oh, I wish I was a better person. It's it's, it's that's true. I just, I think it is a catalyst. I think it is something that sets you up. I don't. It's not that. It's not actually envy. It's more like. It's not. It's like you have like these goalposts that you build. I'm not envious. I'm not even jealous. It's more like. I have goalposts that I've made for myself, and I look at people that are younger than me that have gone past those goalposts, and it wasn't, like, jealousy oh. or anything. Oh, shit, I'm older than them. How come I haven't gotten to where I want to go? It's more like what I want to go, and I haven't reached it. That's the thing. 100% same page. When I would go to uh, academic conferences, I would see folks 10 years younger than me getting their doctorates, working on their fifth book. And it, part of me does feel a little bit down. You know, I, I've only accomplished a couple things. I only have two books out there and a handful of essays. And, and yeah, I, oh, man, it does get you right in the feels. But I do, you know, reel it back in. Hey, you know, they, they have their path. They're doing their thing. They're contributing to something greater than they are. That's awesome. Nick? You may not have a doctorate. You may not you know, have 10 books out, but you know what? You have these other things out. No one else has done it. You are unique that way. You're contributing to something greater than yourself. So it's a way to kind of ground yourself back and feel a little bit better. And the other thing is it's true. You know, we all accomplish different things, and we all contribute to the society around us positively, yeah, I like, hope. And it's also a catalyst that sort of, like, propels you forward instead of you should, that's the way it should be it should be propelling instead of wallowing in misery which I do do for like a short time um but then I <laughs> then I go what are you doing and then I and I push myself forward and I use it as a catalyst to go and accomplish what I need to accomplish and it's like I said it's not even the same goals it's not the same thing it's my own goals my own accomplishments I'm, I'm not after I don't want to be a copy of somebody else. It's just that when you realize you're getting older and you haven't gotten to where you want to be, that's when you want to slap yourself. <laughs> but you know, the, the weird thing, one, again, 100% agree. I know after I get done with an academic conference or symposium, I'll tell you, you know, for the next couple of weeks, I, I do feel like super energized at my own projects because, you know, you get the immediate feedback from folks and encouragement. But, you know, as much as, you know, you also sit back and say, man, these people have accomplished so much and I haven't accomplished as much. I also try to look the other way. There's probably folks looking at me saying the same thing. Oh, man, Nick has got, he writes for a tiki magazine and sword and sandal books and stuff. And I haven't done that yet. So in a weird sort of way, it's kind of, Humbling, if you think about it that way. And it's, and it's, you're right, and it's just this big cycle, sort of like the circle of life, um, <laughs> that we all are sort of being a catalyst to each other to help each other to get to the next post that we want to reach. Yeah. I like that circle of life. I stole that from Lion King. Um, <laughs> A lot from Lion King and uh, Jungle Book. I, I will not be ashamed to admit sometimes I will walk by a door frame and scratch my back against the door and I will say I'm going Jungle Book style. 
character in Jungle Book is blue. I love that bear. <laughs> I would agree. And I love, I know we're getting a little off topic, but I grew up watching Disney Afternoon. And they had a cartoon called Tailspin, where they took all the characters from Jungle Book and kind of put it in a more 1930s uh, nautical slash aerial setting. And so Baloo is a pilot for a cargo company, and it's a it was a great show back in the day. Oh, I, uh, I'm older than you. When I grew up, there was a show called Wonderful World of Disney that Disney himself, went, until I was about five, he hosted it. Um, <laughs> so, and it started with Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell opened it. And in fact, that continued even after he passed away. And it, it, it just opened with Tinkerbell. <laughs> yep. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Back in the 80s, I used to watch some of that, but I was a little kid back then. Um, if you want to know, uh, I have a, a definitely a, a more. I'm sorry? Wonderful World of Disney was like a brilliant packaging idea that Disney had to promote his movies that had been circulated to television that had been out that were that were big for their time, but that that it was a way to circulate. He had a couple of things that you kind of wish they did thought about today. They he had innovative ideas, and people copied them but they don't do it very innovatively. The other one was he held back. He would he would show uh, uh, one of his movies, wide world release, for a very limited time, and then hold off the next time he showed it for seven years. And then he would show it again, so another generation would see that movie. I thought that, and when I found that out, I thought, God, that man was brilliant. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, Sherry, uh, this is a little, this is way before either of our times. But did you ever watch uh, the Disney uh, Silly Symphonies? You mean the cartoons? Sure. Yeah, yeah. They, they were made back in the 1920s and 30s. They were just little shorts that were mostly music focused. I, mm-hmm. if you want to yeah. talk about creativity from Disney, that was that right on point with the experimental and form and music and animation. I, I still hold the, out of all the movies and everything, I still hold the silly symphonies that they cranked out as just a milestone in, uh, in Disney's, you know, uh, uh, repertoire. I studied film in community college and that was one of the things, one of the cool things about that is you get to see stuff you would, ne- I saw silent movies like uh, The General with Buster Keaton. I saw Silly My Tiffany. favorite. I know. And and I, they showed all these things that you would never see normally on television, you know. Uh, it, it was great. I mean, it, it I, if you, even if you don't want to be in film, but you love movies and you really want to know the history of movies, take a film appreciation class at your community college because you get to see stuff they never show, even on all the zillion, zillion cable channels, they never show it. <laughs> even TCM doesn't show some of those things. <laughs> I, I I will go with you on Buster Keaton's The General as – as one of the most favorite. important films out there, uh, 
Yeah, I studied that one in drama class. And one, Buster Keaton was just brilliant. Uh, and two, that, that film, uh, just in terms of teaching structure in film, is it's just probably one of the most important texts to understand, you know, structure in film. You know, how the acts work and, you know, the first half of the film, you know, Buster Keaton's trying to get the train back and all these you know, obstacles comes in his way. But then the second half of the film, he has a train and he's, you know, putting obstacles back out. And it's this, you know, the the two halves of the films are mirror images of each other. It's so ahead of its time. Yeah, he was brilliant. It's really funny because a lot of the kids in my class had never heard of him. It was before the resurgence of Buster Keaton. Uh-huh. Um, that I saw it, because I saw that I was in college in the 80s. So I saw that in the 80s. But when I was a kid, uh, they had repeats of the Twilight Zone on every day. Um, mm-hmm. Here, I grew up in L.A., so we used to watch Twilight Zone every day. So there was one Twilight Zone episode with Buster Keaton that I loved. And whenever they have a marathon, I look for it. He was a time traveler. Well, he wasn't actually the time traveler. He worked for. He was a cleaning guy for a time traveler. He had like a time helmet, and he takes the. He's really bored, and he hates. He thinks that it, inflation is too much, and it's supposed to be 1918 or something like that. It was like no, I think it was 1819 or something like that. And and he's really bored, and, and it costs so much, and and. Uh, no, no, it has to be later because it was a, uh, one of the old cars. So it has to be like 1919 or 1920 because it was a Model A. And he, goes, and, and he said, you crazy driver. And they were just like going really, really slow and, he, and all these things. And then he, um, he puts the time thing on and he goes to the period of uh, the actual Twilight Sun shows, which was the 50s. And he sees mm-hmm. what modern times was. And when he goes back, He's so happy because it's so peaceful, and he loves his world. It's one of my favorite. Anyway, that's how I was introduced first to Buster Keaton, that show. Now, I was introduced definitely through the general, through uh, a drama class, but uh, I have a, I do have a guilty pleasure, though, of uh, I have a soft spot for the 1960s uh uh, beach films that AIP were releasing, you know, those the next Michella films. Yep. But, but although that's the one that he was yes, in. Exactly, he's in Beach Blanket Bingo along with Donna Lauren, doc- who's number one crush. But he was a witch doctor, and his daughter was Samantha. I believe so. Oh man, I'll have to revisit. But I remember him being in Beach Blanket Bingo and. He was, you know, in his kind of twilight years, he was doing a whole bunch of appearances in those AIP films. And, you know, I think it's a good way to, you know, kind of, you know, go out on because I thought, you know, AIP was putting out some great films in those days. But soft spot for those uh, beach party films, that's for sure. Oh, they're fun. And Buster King. I mean, it's ridiculously silly. Really, really dumb. But they're fun. And it's got great music. Pure 60s rock you can get. <laughs> Did you, um, I mean, like, Frankie Avalon is the only one I think is still around from that. 
No, Donna Loren is still kicking. Huh? Donna oh. Loren, she's still kicking. She she was a, a singer in a lot of those. You know, always, oh. you know, not billed like uh, Annette Funicello, but she was uh, a staple in all those films as well, and she's still out there rocking it. Oh, cool. Okay. No, I didn't know that. I, the only one I knew about was Frankie. Mm-hmm. And he's still out there doing, he's like, must be in his 90s, and he's still doing tours. <laughs> oh. Sorry, a cat walked by, so I had to pet it. What? No, no. Oh. Ah. My cat is banned. She was bad. Um. <laughs> no worries. So what else is going on in your plate, uh, Sherry? You're working on some books and stuff? Oh, you're going to switch it on me, huh, Nick? Yes. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, I, I love talking about myself, but, you know, I, I want to hear about what's going on with you a little bit, too. Well, I have um, two books I'm working on. One is a uh, YA science fiction book. Um, it's set in the 70s, and it's based on my childhood. Um, it, it wasn't that the actual incidents in the book happened, but the places and everything that's in the book is absolutely real. And the feelings mm-hmm. that girls are going, there's two girls. It's based, I, you know, it's always a boy, so I, mine's two girls. Um <laughs> Go two, for it. Two eleven-year-old girls, and the feelings these two eleven-year-old girls are going through are absolutely real because that's the feelings I had at that time. You know, sci-fi set in the seventies—that was a great decade for exploring sci-fi. And it's so weird that the change in sci-fi that happened—you know, nineteen seventy-six—you've got Logan's Run. One year later, you have Star Wars. Look at the leap in depictions of sci-fi, storytelling, movie making. Just one year. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot, though. And also, if you look through, there's, there's always something in science fiction that's better than most of the other stuff. Like, um, like in the 50s, it was the day the Earth stood still which was really my favorite of that period, one of the best science fiction movies. And then in the 60s, it was, even though it was, there was some hokey parts of it, was The Time Machine with Rod Taylor. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and then in the 70s, it just went with all the Star Trek and, and, and Star Wars and, and all the other great stuff that came out. <laughs> when... When it comes to that atomic era of sci-fi and horror, you know, the 50s and 60s, uh, I I will stand by the original Steve McQueen blob and monolith (laughs) monsters. Uh, The the people who made monolith monsters, let's make a film where there are rocks that get tall and tumble down on top of you. They pulled it off, and I think it's brilliant. They've mined all these other monsters, giant ants, Dracula, mummies, space aliens – Let's do a movie about basically killer rocks. And it was good. So I stand well, by Monolith Monsters and The Blob. It also had Steve McQueen that didn't hurt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was really good. Uh, I mean, considering. Oh, 
on the block? Absolutely. Known after that time, I thought you did pretty damn good. <laughs> and, and don't forget the uh, the catchy theme song by uh, is Burke Baccarat, wasn't it? Who did the block yeah. theme song? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he was an un- he was an unknown too. Yep, you, you never My, know. Uh, and did you know that there was a, the old Godzilla movies, one of the people who played a, a re- TV reporter was the great Raymond Burr? Yeah, yeah, in the um, the English kind of re-edit of the original Godzilla, uh, when, uh, when they brought Godzilla over to the States, yeah, they, they redubbed it, they re-edited it, and they... Um, they inserted footage of uh, Raymond Burr in it. So the original Japanese Godzilla versus the original U.S. cut of it are substantially different. But they're both good yeah. for, you know, they each accomplish different things. And it's in between him being a bad guy and a good guy. So it was perfect timing. <laughs> it was just in between him playing all these bad guys and then uh, being in Perry Mason. So perfect timing <laughs> to put him as a reporter. And probably and you know, even launched him into Barry Mason for all I know. So, uh, hold on. You might laugh, but on our wall, uh, we have a picture of Raymond Burr that Michelle got uh, when she was a little kid that was autographed by him. So, on our wall above our DVD, uh, you know, racks and stuff, you know, we have a lot of, you know, autographed photos and everything. And there's Raymond Burr staring down upon us. I don't laugh. I have a, I have so many autographs uh, that why would I laugh? Um, <laughs> my my I never met Raymond Burr, but I have this really cute story. Um, one of the people that was someone I grew up. Uh, he was a very good friend of my dad. He was a family friend. His name was Johnny Seven. He played uh, Lieutenant Reese in Ironside. Mm-hmm. And he had a dollar, he had as his backup, because, you know, he was a character actor, and character actors don't work all the time. He had his backup as a real estate agent. He was a broker, and he had a real estate office. And that's where we used to go see him when he wasn't working, was at his office. He uh, Behind his desk, he had a dollar bill signed by Raymond Burr. <laughs> and one day, I saw it all the time, the dollar bill, but I never really looked at it. And one time he and my dad were talking about some football or something boring to me. Mm-hmm. And I walked over <laughs> and I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, oh, my God, that's Raymond Burr's signature. So I finished, waited until they finished talking and I said, Johnny, why is a dollar with Raymond Burr's signature? He goes, oh, he goes, it was a bet. And he never lose. He never. Uh, he he hardly ever used money for anything like that. So uh, I kept it. I made him sign it. He they had a bet oh. on something, and Raymond lost it. And so he made him sign it because he hardly ever played that game when they were doing Ironside. They they all played like silly little games between uh, takes. And he lost this bet with Johnny, and he signed the dollar. <laughs> God. So it's kind of like a fun bet, you know, just betting a dollar on something. Kind of like the movie Trading Places, but more fun. <laughs> yeah, much more fun than that. <laughs> anyway, so I just I always thought that was cute because he kept that was there 
any I mean for his whole life that that dollar bill was signed in in, in his when when he when he sold that it was in his office in his home he just, he always had it right there above his chair. No, very cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. No, I'm I I love getting things autographed. Uh, you know, films, pictures, books, music, albums. You know, has that kind of level of connectivity between you and the uh, person who uh, made it. And, uh, you know, since I have a lot of friends out there who are like authors or whatnot, I, I love, you know, bringing, you know, books that they've done to them and say, could you sign this, you know, book? And so it's even better. Um, it's also, it's kind of fun to sign things. I, I've actually signed quite a few stuff and it's like, you know, I don't, I'm like, I don't know why I'm signing this. I'm not that important, <laughs> but it's, it is kind of fun to, you know, sign other people's treasures. I actually got told off one time when they said that. I was at because I said that I said I wasn't important enough to sign it. But I was a I was a fellow fan. I was at a FINA convention, and I yeah, okay. wrote a book called Murder Inc. And uh, one of the fans brought the book, and I said, I go. I mean, I'll sign it for you, but I mean, it does it. It's not worth anything because I'm not big, and you know, I've only sold like 300 copies of it. And she goes, Sherry, you don't understand. This means a lot to me. Please, just sign it. I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But it does. It's it's really interesting. You're like, you don't think of yourself that way, especially if you're a new author, which I was. And and when somebody says, no, no, it means a lot to me, you're like, oh, <laughs> it really pulls you back, and you realize, okay. <laughs> I think one of the most uh, surrealist experiences I had was uh, there's this tiki magazine I write for called Exotica Modern, and for their debut issue, they did a launch party at a tiki bar in uh, North Hollywood, the Tonga Hut. And I got invited to be there to, you know, you know, sign copies of the magazine as people were buying them. And so, you know, I arrive and I, I sit next to the publisher and the cover artist. And there was a huge, huge queue of people that basically wrapped all the way through the parking lot into the alley. And they're all like, hey, you know, got the magazine. Can you sign it? Can you sign it? Can you sign it? And so I was just, you know, signing, you know, <laughs> probably hundreds of copies of this magazine and, you know, I've never experienced something like that before, but it was kind of, you know, surreal, you know, like, uh, what am I doing here doing this? But, hey, you know, these people want to be here and they want me to be a part of it. So just kind of an interesting experience. The weirdest, and but I was also the proudest thing I ever did was um, I did a signing at um, Barnes & Noble. And Ooh. I had a lot of people there. A lot of people came. They were kind of the people who put it together because it was uh-huh. only my second book. And my mom yeah. was with me. My mom was sitting there because I brought her. I wanted her to be there. Um, we lost my father. So I wanted her uh-huh. to be there. So, um, so I posted some of the pictures on my Facebook page. You can see her looking proud but slightly amused at all these people coming up to ask me to sign my but it's weird. You have all these people. I mean, there was like about I don't know it, it, the whole. It, they give you like a little room, and they have like a little yeah. table. And they have 
around you. And the whole place was, and people were standing. It was the weirdest thing. <laughs> I was like, oh. I mean, I was just focusing on each person that came up to me and signing them because yes. if I didn't, I was freaked out. <laughs> but though, that's still quite quite a cool accomplishment. You know, author signing at Barnes and Nobles, huge queue of people all there for you. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. It was weird. My mom was really proud of me, though. She kept saying, when we cool. were done and when we left, um, we were. Uh, I was. We, were, we decided we were going to get um, something for a celebration. We had went to a Greek restaurant for a celebration lunch. And as we were driving there, my mom goes, "Your dad would be so proud of you because you know how he loved books, and he was so proud of you when you wrote Murder Aunt. He goes, he would have just." so proud. That was like, that was above. <laughs> so, Sherry, sure, i got to ask for, for you and your writing. Do you have a vanity shelf at home that you keep all your books on that you've done? Yeah. <laughs> yes, all right. I do, too. I have, I, every author I have, should have one. I have three bookcases that I have. My bookcase with my um, my favorites that I read all the time in my bedroom. I have uh, what you would call a vanity bookcase that has, like, covers from my books and all my books and uh, the yeah. other stuff done. And then I have the other one that's just filled with books that I, I'm going to get to and read. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a the, serious I, I, reader. I mean, I read, I, ha- I usually read all the time. I have I have books that I carry with me. I don't I I don't know if you're like that, but I love books. <laughs> I I read definitely want it's you know it's a juggle of you know text to consume, be it a film, a show, uh, a book, a comic, because you know some of it yeah it's for fun, but a lot of the times is you know I'm knee deep in you know reading, watching or something because I'm I'm in the middle of a project. Um, so like right now I'm working on a Twilight Zone essay and I have to juggle three books and uh, a movie and, you know, luckily, you know, since I have a, a nice interest in what I do, it doesn't feel like work all the time, but, you know, it's also trying to, you know, make the time to, man, me, I just want to be lazy on the couch and just, you know, read a chaptered fiction book or something. What is your latest book that's just come out? Oh, look at that. You segue back to me. All right. I know. Did you like so, that? Was that smooth? <laughs> that, that, was, that was smooth as room temperature butter. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so Michelle and I, this is our first co-edited book, and it came out officially about a week and a half ago. So it's, it's, it's still super fresh off the uh, presses. The book is called Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern Critical Essays. And uh, it's a collection of essays from our academic conference. Um, So Michelle and I, we run an annual uh, academic conference called the Anne Radcliffe Academic Conference. And it's kind of a a sub-conference of uh, the Horror Writers Association StokerCon event. 
So every year, you know, they do a big conference where it's full of workshops and horror writers and signings and all that fun stuff, and it travels around, and they award the Bram Stoker Awards. Well, um, we proposed to them because we come from a you know, academic background of going to academic conferences. Can, can we create an academic conference for y'all? They were down with it, absolutely. And so um, uh, we're about to do our fourth year of it, which will be in uh, the UK this year. So Michelle and I, we're going to set that one out. We're going to do stuff remotely. Uh, next year it will be in, the, uh, in Denver. But um, our first two years of it, we took a – a lot of the presentations, usually when you have an academic conference, you know, you have folks that are, you know, they, they have a work in progress, they have a presentation, they might be a grad student, they might be a tenure professor, they might even be an independent scholar, and they're just kind of demoing their work. Hey, I'm about to give an essay on, you know, uh, feminism in the twilight zone, you know, something like that. Um, and we give them feedback and, you know, provide an encouraging atmosphere for people to, you know, present their work because it's kind of a big thing to do. Um, so we took a, a whole bunch of essays from our first two years, and uh, we secured a contract with McFarland, which is an academic press that we've worked with before. And uh, we worked with the presenters to basically turn their presentations into uh, essay chapters. And so this book has been about uh, about two plus years in the making, um, you know, from working with the writers to editing it to indexing it, going over the proofs and everything. But the end product is uh, we have a book. It's about I think it's 15 chapters, and each chapter deals with a different uh, horror literature aspect. So let me flip to the table of contents. You think I knew this off the top of my head, but I don't. <laughs> Um, let's see, we've got like we got an essay on Stephen King, an essay on Richard Lehman, uh, an essay on Marjorie Bowen, uh, an essay on Anne Radcliffe, an essay on um, – uh, well, it's kind of weird uh, – on Samuel Beckett technically uh, compared to uh, <laughs> Night of the Living Dead, uh, an essay on the Ring films and books um, – an essay on children's horror books, like picture books for kids. Uh, that was a fascinating essay talking about, you know, how children can kind of consume, you know, horror topics through a picture book without being too horrific. <laughs> um, yeah. And kind of very topical right now with the coronavirus going on, but there is a, a essay on Pulse and Stephen King's Cell, which is about uh, digital uh, contagions out there. Um so, uh, yeah, it's, you know, long time in the making, but, you know, it's our, it's Michelle and I first co-edited book together because my first one is on a Peplum films, Zena, uh, and hers, you know, she did, uh, did a James Bond book and a horror space book, but it's also the first academic book, uh, from the horror writers association. You know, they, they've put out poetry books and fiction collections and stuff like that before. And, you know, the organization, you know, they try their best, but for for academic and nonfiction writing, they've kind of been, you know, it didn't really exist. And so Michelle and I have really been trying to help bring that component to the organization. And this is kind of the uh, result of that. And a lot of the authors in this book, you know, this is their first time being published. And so, you know, we're talking about earlier, you know, getting your books, you know, signing books and feeling really elated about it. 
you know, I'm now seeing the authors of the essays in this book, you know, posting on social media. Look at this. I'm in this book, you know. Thanks, you know, Nick and Michelle for giving us this opportunity to get my work out there. And, oh, it's such a nice feeling. That's cool. That's really exciting. So you're helping other writers get their chance. Absolutely. Um, so how can people buy your book? <clears throat> Nick? Hey, Sherry, give me one second. Oh, we lost Nick. Hello? I am so sorry. I had a I had a sneeze attack all of a sudden. <clears throat> so I muted the phone. My apologies. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So you're sneezing. That's forgivable. Oh, yeah. No, I... No, I'm so sorry. I was talking all of a sudden. I muted the phone. I just had a big sneeze attack. I am so sorry. That's all right. I understand that completely. I get them, too. Um, <clears throat> no, I was asking uh, how people could buy your book. All right. Um, well, you can buy it mostly from two places. It is on Amazon. So if you just, you know, search on Amazon for horror literature from Gothic to postmodern, it's also available from the publisher's website, and that's McFarland Books. Uh, those would be the two best places. Okay. And they have both and, physical and e-copies. And, and how do uh, are you guys going to be doing any um, any uh, conventions or uh, signings or anything where people can go see? You? <clears throat> uh, not officially. Uh, we'll both be at WonderCon next month. I mean, we're not vending or anything, but we will be there. I think our next, like, official, official, in-person, you know, doing something officially is going to be at StokerCon in Denver next year. But it doesn't mean that something won't pop up later this year, though. Cool. And uh, what is? can you give your social media so if people need to say hi or would like to say <laughs> hi? Um, they could. Absolutely. I'm like super gregarious, everyone. So my website is this nickdiak.com, N-I-C-K-D-I-A-K.com. And from there, I got links to my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email. Uh, I'm, that's the, the kind of the positive thing about having a unique last name. You know, I'm very easy to search for. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. You do have a unique last name that makes it easy. Um, it does. Okay. And so, uh, what are so you're on Facebook, Instagram. What's the other one? Are you on Twitter? Twitter. Oh yeah. So yeah, all, links to all those. I just don't remember all the handles off the top of my head because they just auto log in when I you know get on my mobile or anything. But on my, I keep my website up to date. Every day, you know, so if you were to go there, you'll probably see a post. Nick Dyack will be on Sherry's Chatting with Sherry program this Thursday, too, then. <laughs> but you'll see the links to all my, uh, you know, the social media and everything there. So nice centralized place to try to find the best way to contact me. Okay. All right. Um, well, I want to thank you. Uh, I know you're busy writing a new book. I want to thank you for coming on the show. 
You know, I always sincerely appreciate you having me on. I appreciate what you do. I love it when you bring some of my favorite authors on, like Lee Murray. So always appreciate what you do, Sherry. Thank you. I love Lee, too. (laughs) She's a great booster for the show. She's a great lady. Yes, she is. She is a best supporter someone could ever have, absolutely. Yep, I agree. Um, So um, thank you. Thank you so much, Nick. (laughs) No problem. I hope you and I hope your audience has a wonderful rest of your Thursday and an upcoming weekend, too. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.